Hey, I'm Craig Finn. You're listening to That's How I Remember It. This is a podcast that examines the connection between memory and creativity. Each episode features me talking with one artistic guest about how their memories and life experiences influence the stories that they tell others as well as themselves. In the summer of 2011, I was in Austin making what would become my first solo record, Clear Heart, Full Eyes. On a night off, a friend asked me to go see Alejandro Escovedo at the Continental Club. Alejandro was doing a residency there. I believe it was every Wednesday night, but that part is testing my own memory. Going into the show, I knew who Alejandro was, but admittedly, I hadn't done a deep dive yet. The show that night at the Continental was magical, a blast of rock and roll heat that left me shaken and moved. I was absolutely knocked out, but I also had a sneaking suspicion that this was just another day at the office for Alejandro. Either way, I started devouring his catalog, saw him a number of times, all great. Eventually I met him, and I even got to play with him a few times in New York and Austin, both of which were huge thrills. Alejandro Escovedo's history is wild and impressive. He was born into a musical family that includes his brother Javier Escovedo from the early LA punk band The Zeros, and his niece, percussionist Sheila E., among many others. In the mid-70s, Alejandro was part of San Francisco punk pioneers The Nuns, who were trailblazers that even opened up for the Sex Pistols at Winterland. He then moved to Austin and was a member of two seminal Americana bands, Rank and File and The True Believers, before releasing his first solo record, Gravity, in 1992. He's since released a bunch of solo albums, and he's created an incredible career. Alejandro is one of America's great songwriters, and he was recently inducted into the Texas Songwriters Hall of Fame, which we talk about here. I'm a massive fan, and very grateful to have Alejandro Escovedo here on That's How I Remember It. The history's rewritten When the memories get meddled with the way that I remember it. Thanks for joining us. And uh, I start all these the exact same way. And uh, the question is, do you consider yourself to have a good memory? Yes, I do, actually. I've been told I have a very good memory. So, yes. What do you, I mean, how does that manifest itself? Can you remember like dates, conversations, uh, all of it? I mean, do you think Most, you just. Mostly re- like images, some conversations, but. You know, I can place myself back into, like, I remember being a child in a crib, you know. My dad's built a house for us out by Kelly Air Force Base in San Antonio, you know. And I remember, you know, like the wooden blind. So he lined the whole house inside with knotty pine wood, you know, and it smelled really great and had all these knots in the wood so you could, you know, kind of make out faces or whatnot in, in different images, you know. And I remember the blinds and I remember being in that crib and the sunlight, you know, filtering through the blinds. It was very bright, of course, in Texas, you know. And then at night, I would remember laying there and the, it must have been like from an air controller or something, but there was a spotlight that would rotate. And every now and then you'd hear the spotlight, you know, the spotlight would hit me, you know, and then fade away, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Do you, I mean, you talk about this, the smell of the pine. Are, is that, are those kind of senses, like a smell something that conjures memory to you? Well, you know, in the same way that food does, right? Like when I eat a good plate of enchiladas, let's say, I think of my mother, right? Because she was 
the best cook I've ever known, you know, as far as Mexican food goes. And it's a food that brings back a lot of great memories and a lot of difficult memories also, you know. Of course, hearing my father's voice, my father had a very deep and resonant voice, you know, and so I remember when he passed away, which was like in, my dad lived to be 97 years old, you know. So he, I remember hearing his voice all the time after he passed away. Like, you know, the voice that used to wake me up on Saturday mornings to go to Little League practice, the voice that used to wake me up to go surfing on the weekends and stuff like that, you know? So, yeah, obviously his voice was really kind of the first thing that I really attached myself to, you know, in a very loving kind of way. I felt safe with his voice, you know? No, that no, that uh, that's beautiful, actually. I started this podcast with this idea that all the writers I talked to would say they have a very good memory. And it hasn't really been the case. I'm like <laughs> you. I'm like you. I think I have a great memory. I really remember conversations. And I, you know, almost to a point where I can spit something back seven years later, which is right. annoying to my partner, you know, when we start <laughs> to fight. And as far as being on the road, also, I'm the guy in the band where they say, have we played this place before? And I'm like, absolutely. We've played it twice. We played it in 2007 and 2013, you know? And I think that going into those spaces really connects with me. But how do you think your this memory, which I think sounds like you do have a very good one, how do you think it shows up in your songwriting and your storytelling? Well, it allows me to go back and listen to those stories that my father told me, you know, over the years. And because really when, you know, like I wanted to be a filmmaker, right? I didn't want to be a musician. I was surrounded by musicians in my family. And they were all so great, you know. I mean, they were these are guys that are playing with Cal Jader, Mongo Santa Maria. They're in Santana, you know. Sheila E is like the baddest drummer in the world. And so in, in a family of 13 kids, I was the seventh kid, right? And you're kind of an invisible kid, you know. Nobody really cares what you do, you know. And so in order to get their attention, I wasn't going to play guitar. I was going to... I became a juvenile delinquent, you know, <laughs> kind of, <laughs> you know, like all those stories and stuff and situations that I found myself in because I was allowed to go, you know, on surfing trips for like, you know, weeks on end and things like that, you know, when I was very young, you know, so all of that really plays into when I sat down to write for the first time, I wanted to write about the stories my father had told me, you know. So I wrote like a song called The Ballad of the Sun and the Moon, which was based on the stories he told me about, you know, having to hide the young girls when the revolution was happening in Mexico, you know. And, you know, just how that invasion, you know, that war affected his life, you know. And it was just like Mexico just seems like such a mysterious place in the first, you know, to begin with, right? You know what I mean? all the stories we heard from our family and stuff that were brought down from generations and generations, you know? So that's what I listened to, you know? When did your dad come to the States? He came in 1919. He was 12 years old. He came looking for his parents, right? So like my dad's journey was crazy, man, you know? So like, you know, he was full of stories, you know? And I listened very intently to his stories. Yeah, I mean, I think some of this idea of memory that, as I talk to people, is not just our own memory, but sort of this tradition of, you know, 
trying to keep stories alive and passing stories and of our loved ones and our friends and all that. You talk about music. You grew up in a music family, musical family. What are your earliest memories involving music? Well, I remember my father loved rancheras. He loved country music. And you got to remember, I was born in 51, right? So rock and roll has just started to really like, you know. And I had a cousin who loved Elvis and Chuck Berry and Little Richard and, you know, Jerry Lee and the and especially the Big Bopper, you know. So those were the records that I would hear to, when she was, you know, her room was also full of Elvis Presley posters, you know. And so, like, I would listen to those records and, and you know, I even did a little uh, Elvis Presley imitation when I was a little kid. They put me in a talent show, you know, <laughs> and I think I did Hound Dog, of course. But, you know, it was like, it was th that's the music that I remember immediately outside of Mexican music, you know, and country music also. So I know you, you were born in Texas and you grew up, but at what point did you get to California? We left in 57. So we got there late 57, early 58. So you were in grade school and whatnot in California. I was. Yeah. So with that rock and roll, at what point, you know, so the Beatles, the Stones, etc., that must have come in almost as you're a teenager, right? Yes, exactly. But, you know, like before then, we listened to my cousins were dancers. Everybody danced back then, you know. So they taught me all the dances, you know. So we would go see, like, the Johnny Otis Review, you know, and, like, Solomon Burke was there, you know, like, all these great artists. We'd go, they'd take me to go see Ike and Tina Turner Review, you know. So I saw all that kind of stuff first, you know. And then surf music, of course, was really big. The Beatles, of course, kind of hit and just blew everything up, you know. And then I just got really attached to, like, garage bands, you know. I loved garage bands. So. Were the Stones big for you? Huge, yeah. I've heard you do a number of Stones songs, so it, it seems obvious to me. So it, as you move around it now, like in the current, is there music that you attach to certain, like, places? Or is there music that sounds better to you in certain places, etc.? or is it all the same? No, you know. Like, you know, when I, when I living out in the, you know, I, first of all, like country music, let's take, for example, it sounds best to me when I'm driving through the hill country of Texas, you know, mm -hmm. or the West Texas, you know, out on those roads that last forever, it seems, you know, where the landscape is barren, but it's very beautiful at the same time, you know, so it's funny, like now I can't really listen to other types of country music. I like to listen to George Jones, of course, and Hank Williams. And I like the old stuff, you know, I'm an old guy, so I like the old stuff, you know. But it makes sense, you know, that listening to it, driving with the windows down or in convertible and on those roads in Texas, it just sounds perfect, you know. You know, as far as like more urban stuff, like, you know, when I first heard like Bowie and, you know, T-Rex and Mata Hoople and bands like that, Roxy Music, it really came together when I moved to Hollywood, you know. On the beaches, it didn't make much sense as far as, like, you know, listening to Bowie records on the beach, you know, kind of thing. But when I moved to Hollywood, it, it suddenly all came together, you know, the clothes and the look and the other people who were participating in that scene, you know. And punk rock feels good anywhere, I think, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, I've moved. <laughs> I moved to New York. It's going to be twenty three years in September, and there's music that I that sounds best to me here. I, I keep saying this podcast, but like electric jazz, electric Miles Davis in the summer in New York with the you know with the traffic outside and all that. That just sounds right. And when I go back to Minnesota, where I'm from, it just doesn't sound kind of right, you know? But there's music in the wide open spaces that sound that sounds better, too. You talked about wanting to be a filmmaker. And I'm curious if, like, when you go, when you talk about film or anything you're consuming, films, books, music, art, are there any eras that you're particularly drawn to? I know I'm, for instance, I am, like, I was born in 71, so I'm obsessed with the Nixon era because I think I'm trying to confirm memories that I've just started to have. And so, like, when I look at buildings or, you know, the way women dressed or men dressed in films like that, I think I'm confirming something that I barely remember. Do you have anything like that? Do you have, like, eras? Do you like, you know, certain periods of time to, to look at? Or is it all the same to you? Well... You know, the era that really hit me and wanted me to be a filmmaker was the French New Wave, you know. And all of the films from that period of time in the 60s, because I just felt like those movies were so poetic, you know, and poetry was a big interest to me, you know. So I just love the literary angle that they took and how it was very kind of honest, it seemed, you know, that type of filmmaking which you didn't see in Hollywood a lot, you know, until Cassavetes and guys like that came along. But, you know, and then I'm a big fan of John Huston. I love John Huston as a director and his films, you know. And I think he was very much a genius, an American genius, you know. So films like that, Peckinpah, of course, you know, yeah. because of his just take on the West, you know, is pretty ama amazing. And the actors that he brought in to, to act in his films and the writing is beautiful. I mean, you know, when you look at Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, I mean, it's to me, it's like a perfect film, you know, where you can marry, like, you know, I mean, that, that scene with uh, Slim Pickens, you know, going to the walk into the river and knocking on Heaven's door is played, you know, I mean, it's... I mean, it doesn't get better than that, you know. And the marriage of music and image there is just uh, right. like, like you know, yeah. gives you chills. You're a new member of the Texas Songwriters Hall of Fame. Was that this weekend? It happened, yeah, yeah last yeah. weekend. Yeah. Okay, well, congratulations. Thank you. You've, uh, I mean, you did spend time in California, but yeah, I think you're known as a Texan. Um, and Texans own kind of thing. What's the best part of of being a part of something like that? You know, I don't really know, man. I mean, they're, it's very weird, you know. It's very strange. And it's hard to wear, you know, this kind of, like, badge of I'm in the Hall of Fame kind of thing, you know. It makes me a little uncomfortable, quite honestly. And yet at the same time, I'm really grateful because, I mean, I was the first Mexican-American in the Texas, you know, Songwriters Hall of Fame. So that's a pretty special place to be. You know, they get, they put me in the Austin City Limits Hall of Fame, too, you know. And that was pretty cool, too. I mean, it, they're all great. I mean, I can't say they're bad, but they do make me a little uncomfortable because I think of all the people that I think I would have put in my place, you know. I think there's more deserving folks, in other words, you know. Yeah, you know, when, when they when they give you that award, you're obviously you get put up on a pedestal. And I was, I was thinking about, do you have at any point, like, do you, is there anyone you considered when you were starting out to be a mentor or someone that you that you had access to 
um, that you could that you had questions to, etc. Or was it just like I'm going to try to do my own thing? I didn't really have a mentor because you have to remember that I was just a rhythm guitar player and mm -hmm. barely that. And you know, I was the guitar player and the nuns, but. I can't really say that we made music. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and then in rank and file, I was merely put in this very kind of George Harrison-like place, you know. I, I wasn't appreciated in that band necessarily, you know. So it was difficult, you know. And then when I went off on my own, finally, The Two Believers was really the first band where, you know, I felt really like part of this big thing that was happening, you know. Mm -hmm. And I loved it, you know. And that's when I wrote my first song. I was 30 when I wrote my first song, you know. A song called The Rain Won't Help You When It's Over, you know. So from there, when I went solo, Stephen Bruton produced my first three albums. And he was the first real mentor that I had musically. And he really kind of taught me the ropes about arranging and songwriting and putting a band together and solid record and because i was playing with like what i called the alejandro escovela orchestra here in austin but it was like anywhere from five to 15 pieces on any given night and he says you're never going to take that on the road right you know so like let's make a record where you can it's all about the songs right and he sure. really like drilled that into me it's about songwriting you know and so he produced my first three and then i was really lucky to work with chris stamey and Chris was the first guy that really told me I could sing. And I remember making a record with Chris, and he said, we could make an acapella record today, and it would be a great record, you know. So he was the first guy that gave me that boost. And then I went to John Cale after that, you know, as a producer. That was after I was sick for a few years, you know. So he really kind of helped me kind of, you know, strengthen my inner core and, like, become more confident again because I'd lost my confidence and he really helped me stand up and stand up tall. You know, he wanted me, he said, I want three things from you. I want you to sing better than you've ever sung. I want you to go deeper than you've ever gone with your songwriting. And I want you to appear like you're healthy and happy, you know. So that was good sound advice too, man. I, I loved work, working with him. You know? Was that, I mean, was that appearing healthy and happy? Was that, was that your natural state at the moment? Or was he saying, No, not at all. Not at all. I, it really took, and I don't think the record came out like that at all either. You know, I mean, it's really kind of one of the more probably darker records that I've made, you know, because my father died during that time. And the first song I wrote was about my mother and my father during that time, you know. It was a hard record to make, you know, it was really hard. And then working with Visconti, who is like, he was so sweet, man. He was just so great. And we made three records with together, you know, and I was very, I'm really proud of the records we made together. And he was very compassionate as a producer. And he, you know, you know, the beautiful thing about producers, I think, is when they bring out something in you that you didn't even know existed, you know, some sort of angle towards writing or a freedom that they suddenly give you where you feel liberated enough to become something more than you are, you know? And that's what Visconti really gave. Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on That's How I Remember It, we often talk about music. So I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. 
Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. I think the producers have changed me as a songwriter more than anyone else. And mm-hmm. they have a, you know, they make a lot of records. So I think they're able to swoop in and say, here's what's unique about you. Here's cool. I mean, I, I was really hung up the first time I made a solo record. And Mike McCarthy, I went down to Austin to make it with this guy, Mike McCarthy, who's great. I, I was really apologetic by, about my own playing. And he said, hey, man. <laughs> Can you call me on the phone and sing me the song over the phone, just your voice? And you got the words and you got the melody? I said, yeah. He's like, well, we got the song then, you know? Yeah, that's but it. Yeah. We'll work out the rest. Like, I'll get someone in here if you don't want to play guitar, but, you know, we can do it. And the other thing is, I ask about this mentor thing because I, I went to, a friend of mine was doing one of those School of Rocks with young kids. And he, I walked in and I watched him for a little bit and he was telling the kid to play you know, the bass player to play with the kick drum, the bass and the kick to line up. And I thought it took me and my friends four years to figure that out. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had That's like so the, the little league coach there. Yeah, exactly. Um, just a little bit could have helped us a lot. But uh, so funny. back in 2018, I was lucky enough to go down to Austin. We played at the Moody Theater and you played a man under the influence. And we did some covers and even my own tune, New Mary's Roof, which was a thrill. I got the feeling from hanging out that night that you've picked up kind of a big community of people along the way, like fans become friends, become family. Is that a testament to you just being friendly or is that some vision, part of your vision of rock and roll? Well, it is part of the vision of rock and roll because I grew up, you know, in the sixties when it was all about community, you know, it was all about us against them. Right. You know, so we had to stick together. Right. And, you know, you called out the sellouts, whoever they may be. And, you know, you know, it was a pretty hard line kind of thing. And then with punk rock, of course, punk rock was all about, you know, there was very few of us against the rest of the world. You know, in San Francisco, it was all Bill Graham. Right. You know, and for us to play, we actually walked into the Mabuhai Gardens and told Nesakino, the owner, that we could draw thousands of people to his club. It was a Filipino supper club. <laughs> we had never really even played a gig before, you know. And we made these little tickets, and the Dills played with us, you know, which became rank and file, right? Sure. So Chip and Tony played with us, and we made these little tickets, and we just handed them out to everybody that looked cool in North Beach, right? You know, so it was like all the City Lights people, it was all the Angels of Light, and the Cockettes, and all the Tubes family, you know, all those guys. And that became our audience, you know. And But we came very close to them. It represented who we were. And I've always loved that about punk rock, that it erased the line between the audience and the performer, you know. To me, that was really important, you know. So, so the community thing you're talking about is a result of that kind of philosophy. Absolutely. And I came up with punk and hardcore, but not until the mid eighties. And the community thing was the exciting thing to me. There was also, I found like sometimes a fair amount of rules, both overt and implied by then. It sounds like, it feels like to me, you got, you maybe got to punk before there were some of these rules and got to experience a, or got to maybe, you know, experience some of the freedom of the pre mid eighties and everything that came after. Well, you know, you know, when I got, when we, 
did that that was like 75 or 76. Mm -hmm. It was 75, I believe. And so like, you know, there was a lot more women involved. The diversity was amazing. And it was all about expressing yourself, you know. There was guys who'd come up with like, you know, hubcaps and drumstick and, you know, reciting poetry and stuff, you know. But it was all great because they were really had something to say, you know. So I've always felt that it was important also to never feel like because I'm the songwriter that I'm something better or different than the people who are listening to the songs, you know. I've always wanted to feel one with that. You know, like, you know this. When you're in a club that's like perfect, a small club, and you're there singing, whether it be by yourself and a string section or whatever it is, and you feel that moment when you almost kind of close your eyes and the whole room elevates, you know, the whole room collectively goes to another place. That's a, I hate to use the word magical, but it is somewhat, I mean, it's just something so special, you know, that you cling on to those moments. That That's part of memory too, those moments that you cling to because they were just so enlightening or, or, you know, they transformed your whole life. This is one of the things I've been asking people about when I can, and it's sort of what you're talking about, but then I also feel like the audience brings something to the, to, you know, the audience has a power and also a different memory of the thing. And I was, so on, on July 13th, I looked this up, July 13th, 2011, I went to the Continental Club in Austin, Texas. I was making the record down there that I was talking about. And it was like a Wednesday night, which I think you had a residency and I went to see you play. We hadn't met yet, but what transpired was one of the literally not blowing smoke, one of the best shows I've ever seen. And then I was thinking, did you experience that way? Or is this another day at the office? You know, because you were doing a residency. I was like, did that happen every night? Because I, what I saw was magical. You know, does something when, you know, when we've both done a thousands of shows, does something have to have an extra musical to make, you know, non-musical to make it perfectly, particularly memorable? Or do you still have shows that you're like, we were so on that night? I mean, I still have shows that I walk away from and I'm just thinking that's the best show I've ever done and the audience was the best audience I've ever played to. And it's just that thing that happens. That's the beauty of music, right? You know, how it just, it transcends so many levels and emotions and thought that everyone just kind of finds a place within that, you know? I remember going to the the Cactus Cafe here in Austin and listening to Towns Van Zandt, you know? Once I went after a very tragic event in my life, you know, someone close to me had passed away and I, I went to listen to Towns and it was a big mistake because, you know, it, he didn't help with the grief at all. You know? <laughs> and he just took me down further, but he had the power to kind of create that kind of vibe, which I thought was amazing about Towns, you know, and I think it brought him down eventually. I think that weight, the weight of that brought him down does that attach itself does that moment attach itself like do you when you listen to towns van sant now do you have to go there i always think about that night i really do i connect that that event with that nights for some reason you know and you know you know you know you also know that when you go see somebody play let's say you know you see towns in a room or Joni mitchell in a room or whoever it might be right and you walk away feeling like they really were just talking to you you know, like they were telling you their life story, you know. That's the beauty of songwriting and communication as a musician. I think that not too many other people get to experience, you know, like a painter doesn't experience that, you know. A filmmaker doesn't experience that, you know. 
Yeah, in the audience, though, I mean, I feel like I my best moments are when I say, like, I felt that way, too. <laughs> and yeah, there's not yeah. one per- exact word for it, but you just pretty much hit it. I went through my photos to try to find the date of that Continental Club show, and I only had one photo from it, but that's how I found the date. There was a woman dancing. It's a oh, fuzzy photo. But I, yeah, uh, yeah. and yeah, it, she may have been on stage or on the bar. I couldn't tell from the way the photo was taken. It was blurry. It reminded me, like, wow, I was kind of right back there. Yeah, and, yeah. And She's great, way. yeah. In fact, we just played, we did the ramp band. You know, I did the Mod 50th anniversary show here, and we played at the Continental Club on the Sunday. And actually, Clara has been ill, and she got up and danced with us that night, and it was really great. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask about the Rant Band, because I, I am also a huge Mount the Hoople fan. I wonder, what what is that music to you? Well, I grew up with that music, man. I mean, you know, it was like the first band where I felt like something about Ian's writing married like rock and roll, like real rock and roll, like hard rock and roll with some sort of literary kind of poetic thing that was still rocking, you know? And he wrote a lot about what it was like to be in a band that I believed, you know? And he also never excluded us from the story. Yeah. I mean, you said exactly. I'm a huge fan. I, you know, it was a little before my time, but when I go back and listen to those records, I think they're so important because for one, there's that there's a little bit of that mythologizing, which I love. You know, do you remember the Saturday gigs? That's yeah, yeah. That's yeah. connecting the audience, and that's like with the whole study. I, and I asked you about community. That's always been my thing. Is like, I want to try to build this kind of congregation Absolutely. that we all come into the same room and feel that way. And I think that maybe like one of the early versions of this is what Matahupo was doing, right? Because they were all about their fans. You know, Mott could not sell records in the beginning. You know, they selling out big halls and stuff. The, the Sea Divers, which was the Mott fan club, is like Morrissey and Mick, Mick Jones. Jones. I can't remember the other guy's name, the writer that, that was a big part of that. But, I mean, all those kids, you know, that ended up being in all those great punk rock bands were Mott to Hoople fans. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think Mick Jones may have even done some kind of light roadie work for them. Yeah, and he produced Ian's album, you know, later when he went a solo record too. So yeah, uh, I we were down in Australia earlier this year, and we went and see these penguins. And I met the guy who was kind of in charge of the tour, and he was a big Mount the Hoople fan. I said, "If you like Mount the Hoople, I'm just gonna I'm gonna put you on the guest list. You got to come." And I looked out from the audience, and I could see him out there smiling ear to ear. And I was like, "That was Mount the Hoople still <laughs> doing good work across the world." Yeah, and uh, absolutely, yeah. So when I went back. When I went down to Austin in 2018, we played the song New Myers Roof that I wrote, and it has a line in it, my song, that's, he liked me much better when I was walking away. After I wrote it and recorded it, someone astutely pointed out that you have a very similar line in, in Castanets. <laughs> I liked her better when she walks away. I only say it once, so I feel, I would think I was only, I was able to chalk it up as an homage. Has that ever happened to you? You get something and then realize maybe, well, when you pulled it out of the ether, it might not have been quite the ether might have been attached to a, <laughs> to, to a leg or a body. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's happened before, absolutely, you know. And, you know, it's funny because I've written with some people that are not some people. Some guys, like, Google titles of songs to see who else has the song or whatnot, you know. I've never done that. I just write it, you know. And if someone else had the same thought, I figure we're on the same wavelength and it's cool, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, some of these things, I mean, I, I, I sort of feel like, 
rock and roll is part of that mishmash, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're recycling stuff and we're trading ideas. Yeah, man. I mean, you know, it's in the folk tradition, really. I mean, you know, and folk songs were all about, you know, just changing the lyrics in Mexican music. There's a song called a corrido, which is just a story song that, you know, you can put any, now they put cartels in these corridos, you know, but originally it started out with the revolution and, Zapata and Pancho Villa and people like that. Yeah. yeah. Regarding Casanets, you know, I, I think we've been talking about how, like, when you sing, it becomes at least partly the audience's song. You, you know, you put your hopes, dreams, and experiences into the song, but once it's out there, it's subject to interpretation, whatever the listener might to attach to it, and fandom, really. Um, Casanets famously showed up on George W. Bush's iPod playlist, and, and you didn't play it for a bit. Uh, in protest, I guess. You can't really control who's listening to songs. Is that a struggle? Is that the only time you struggle with that? Or, or was there anything learned in this? No, that was the only time that ever happened, you know. And it was it was it was pretty embarrassing. Um, you know, because I remember <laughs> a friend calling me and, and said, Have you read The Times today? And I said, No. And he goes, Well, you better check it out. There's something in there about you, you know. And it was Bush's iPad. Uh, iPod or whatever you call it, iPod, and uh, and you know, and but what's crazy is the version he listened to was the Los Lonely Boys version of my song. It wasn't my song, but my mother was quite happy, which disturbed me even more that it was on the president's playlist. <laughs> well, I've always, for what it's worth, when I've ever seen those lists, I've always assumed that some hip young staffer has been put in charge, and I don't really, yeah, I, I don't know, but yeah, that's what it was. But I think at the same time, you know, I, I see in this day and age, like a lot of music, a lot of music fans, I don't think are listening to the lyrics or understanding. You know, I mean, Springsteen, Drive by Truckers, Chasing Isbell, they're all, I've seen them all fight with their fans, you know, and it's like I don't know. Sometimes I'm, I'm surprised that someone can take. Be on, uh, you know, not 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 be aware that that there's some sort of uh, implied political statement uh, or political notion to just writing songs that that are that are loving, that are caring, that are um, that are that are about sometimes the downtrodden, etc. You know, it's funny because when I wrote this album, The Crossing, right? You know. Um, and we played it out across the United States. There was a lot of people, not a lot, but there were there was always someone in the crowd who I, I have a song called uh, Fire and Fury, and it's about Trump coming down the elevator, uh, escalator, and, uh, you know, pronouncing that all Mexicans were rapists and drug dealers and shouldn't be allowed in the country. And we would get some, and when I would explain that that's what the song was about in the introduction, uh, we'd always get people who were protesting, you know, like either shouting 45 or, you know, fuck you or whatever it was, you know, there was always a protest, you know. I mean, that to me, that's really crazy. I mean, it, it just, I, there's a, there's a, I mean, the rest of your catalog would support the idea that you might write that song to me. Right. Right, right. And, you know, like when, I, when the album came out, also like on Facebook, I got some actual like, you should go back to Mexico. Things, oh, wow. You know. Wow. Um, and which shows the ignorance. I mean, I wasn't born in Mexico, so <laughs> I wouldn't mind going back to Mexico. <laughs> I, you know, yeah. Um, so Heartbeat Smile, 
you know, burn something beautiful. The chorus, I miss my friends. You've undoubtedly lost people along the way. How do you, how do you honor them going forward? How do you, how do you deal with that in your music? Cause it's something I have been more aware and more thinking about um, these past year or two. That's interesting. I, I, I love that question because I'm, I'm in the process of writing a record about friendship, you know, and, I had a friend when I was growing up, his name was James Luna. He was a Luceno Indian. Uh, there are reservations down below San Diego. Um, and he was a performance artist, you know. I don't know if you know, like, that era of 60s performance art, Gary Schneider and Joseph Boys and all those guys. He was part of that era. I know Boys. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, um, so anyway, he was a performance artist dealing with basically life on the reservation and the plight of the Native American, right? You know, and he was really a great artist. And he was my friend. I lived with him when I left home at 15. We lived in an Airstream trailer uh, overlooking the beach, you know, in, in Huntington Beach, you know. And, uh, you know, he taught me about music, about jazz and stuff and drinking wine and, and listening to poetry or reading poetry and, you know, all that kind of stuff that was happening. He really kind of like spurred me on, you know, and was always a big uh, uh, inspiration to me. He passed away and I just started thinking about like, you know, as I get older, it seems like the circle of friends gets tighter and tighter, you know, and the circle of people that I want to be around gets tighter and tighter. Um, and that's kind of good and bad, you know, because uh, I, I live out in the country and I could easily just isolate myself and not, you know, care whether I see someone again or not. You know, I know that sounds kind of cold, but I, I like it out there, you know, and, I, and because because of the life I've led too, you know, which has been around people for so many years. I mean, um, I like the solitude. I like the quiet, just being with my wife and the dogs. It's pretty, pretty cool, you know. And that's what kind of COVID did too, was kind of put the pause button on, you know, you and I have toured extensively for years, right? Hardcore tours, punk rock tours, you know? Uh, you know, like, you know, in the van, you know, not on the bus, but in the van for miles and miles, hours and hours. So it was kind of nice to finally sit back, put my feet up, listen to the birds sing you know, watch a lot of movies, read books, and just do all the stuff I hadn't been able to do for many, many years, you know. And I think that kind of contributed to this kind of, like, sense that it's okay to be, you know, alone out there, you know. And so, but as far as friendship, I mean, I I, I try to write a lot about, my friends have influenced me a lot, you know. Uh, and I've had good friends and bad friends, like all of us, you know. And they all kind of contribute to the uh, uh, what what I write about. You know, they really do. My uh, my band, the Hold Steady, is turning twenty. Will we turn twenty this year? And I think, as I took stock, I think one of the um, most amazing things is that all our friendships are intact, and we've done a lot of cool stuff. But that may be the most beautiful thing of all. That's um, wonderful. I couldn't I couldn't say that about any of the bands I've. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean it's it's really it's really crazy. And and you know when I was in the pandemic, I I agree. I, I there were some really nice moments to just put pause. But I found that the things I missed weren't. I mean the shows were of course you missed the shows, but like I just remember like like getting into a flying gig the night before and having one beer at the hotel room bar before you go to bed with the guys. You know, I'm like, wait, that's the thing I miss. I didn't even know yeah. I liked that, you know? Yeah. I thought yeah, we were killing yeah. time. No. And that, that's the That's beauty. true. That's true. I really, I miss those moments too. And, you know, I don't tour like I used to tour. I, I do the, the long weekend kind of tours now, you know. But uh, I do miss those moments of just hanging out and, you know, laughing so much at the same old joke that we've told, you know, for years and, you know, and turning each other on to different things, records and that kind of stuff and going record shopping with my friends or clothes shopping, you know. So, yeah, I do miss that, but I did a, I, did, I did do a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, here, I mean, that that's a good place to end. I, I have one more question and, uh, it there was uh, when I was researching all this that there was talk at some point about a memoir you were writing or collaborating on. I can't think of a more of a rock and roll book that I'd want to read more. Is it is that book imminent? Yes, it, it is. It, it's on its way. It's the book that's taking forever. But uh, you know, like talking about memory, when I sit down with my collaborator, it's just hours and hours of stories. You know. Uh, so yes uh it is on its way though yeah. all right well i can't wait to read it thank you for joining me today oh you're quite welcome all right let's hope that book comes out soon i cannot wait such a joy to have alejandro escovedo join us here today if you haven't spent time with this catalog i implore you to run don't walk as it's full of amazing songs and stories and it's big enough catalog that i keep finding new gems each time i go back as he mentioned here, Alejandro doesn't tour quite as hard as he used to, but he does play shows, so check out alejandroescovedo.com for tour dates and go see him. A huge thanks to you for listening. I really appreciate it. We've got more great guests coming up in coming weeks, so please listen and subscribe to That's How I Remember It. <laughs>